Hey everyone, welcome to Crisis the Cure. We are continuing our summer guest series, and today we have a special guest, Chris Date, who is an author at Rethinking Hell. He's a conditionalist, and for those who aren't really familiar with that term, it kind of goes into this broader camp, or it narrows down into annihilationism, and we'll have Chris explain that for us. Uh, this will be a really interesting show, because as most listeners know by this uh, point, I would think, is that I hold to the standard or I guess the historical view of, um, you know, the eternal destruction and hell being uh, eternal torment. And so we're going to have a different perspective today. And with that, Chris, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my name is Chris Date. I am the sort of public face of a ministry called Rethinking Hell, which you can find at RethinkingHell.com. We have a blog and a podcast, and we do annual conferences, and we've published a couple of books, and I do debates and interviews and you know a variety of things on the topic um, as a sort of leading proponent of uh, a movement within evangelicalism known as conditional immortality, um, the shorthand of which is conditional conditionalism or conditionalist, as you said, and we'll get into what that terminology is uh, in a, you know shortly. Um, I'm married for almost 20 years, and my wife and I have four sons ranging in age from six at the youngest to 18 at the oldest. I'm a software engineer by, uh, by career, by trade, but um, software engineering isn't really where my passion is. Um, I want to teach one day Bible and theology at the seminary or university level. And so to that end, I'm right now wrapping up a master's degree in theology, at which point I hope to go on to do a PhD in Old Testament, uh, and then hopefully start teaching. So that's kind of, uh, kind of me in a nutshell. Interesting. Can I, may I ask where you're going to uh, get your master's? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to um, Fuller, but let me Fuller Theological Seminary. But let me um, uh, issue a caveat there. So I did my undergraduate at the school that I felt um, was extremely close to me in terms of ethos and beliefs. I did my undergraduate at Liberty University. Um, Liberty is borderline fundamentalist. They're very conservative, and these are all things that are true of me as well. They are. They do differ from me in a couple of ways. I'm, for example, reformed. Um, Liberty is, uh, you know, particularly known for um, being non-reformed. I'm also not a dispensational uh, premillennialist, as a, you know, a lot of people at Liberty are. But you know, a couple of those things aside, for the most part, I really shared the conservative, borderline fundamentalist mindset of Liberty University. But when I went to do my master's, I wanted to go to a school where I would be challenged and stretched, and where I wouldn't be sitting in a proverbial echo chamber where people were going to be telling me what I already know and believe. Yeah. So I wanted to go to a school where not everybody thought like I did, and where I would be challenged with views that I don't already hold, and for reasons that I don't currently accept. And uh, But at the same time, I did want to go to a school that identifies as evangelical, and that stands for the uh, essentials of the faith, and is pushing back against some of the cultural trends uh, in uh, you know that, that are going on in the country today. And Fuller Theological Seminary fit all those um, characteristics. Uh, you know, they they're there, uh, those of us who are conservative, you and I, I'm sure, fall into this camp. Um, we have there's sort of a, a caricature of Fuller, where it's just totally liberal. But the reality is that liberals think Fuller is too conservative, <laughs> and um, the faculty and the student uh, body at Fuller is extremely diverse. I've had. Um, professors who, particularly Old Testament professors, who uh, promote 
views that the Old Testament is largely not historical. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I was really taken aback when I encountered the uh, popular Old Testament scholar belief that the golden calf incident at the base of Mount Sinai um, is not historical. It was it was made up. Um, centuries later and written back into the text in order to combat um, uh, uh, pagan worship that was competing for Yahweh worship during the uh, Second Temple period. And you know that's very common, in, um, at least in the Old Testament field. So there, there certainly are very liberal, very left-leaning faculty at Fuller. But then on the other hand, in some of my New Testament uh, pro- uh, classes, I encountered professors who uh, argue that the even the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus, are actually written by Paul, which is a fairly unpopular view nowadays amongst mm. um, even conservatives. A lot of conservatives even think that those pastoral epistles are clearly not Pauline, and yet here are professors who hold my very conservative view that that these epistles are Pauline. Now I'm rambling, but the point of all of this is just to say that when I when I say I go to Fuller, <laughs> people shouldn't <laughs> people shouldn't take that as an indication that I'm in any way liberal because I'm not. I'm extremely conservative. And it's for that very reason that I am going to Fuller because I wanted to be challenged and stretched. And I don't think Fuller deserves the reputation that they have. They're much more diverse and they're much more centrist uh, than a lot of us conservatives give them credit for. Well, that'll definitely give some people perspective because I've definitely heard that thrown around in regards to Fuller. And for for listeners, I would say, um, you know, uh, whenever Chris and I were emailing back and forth a little bit, he told me that he aligns more closely with the 1689. So uh, for a lot of the people that listen to me, this will be a little bit closer to home in terms of where Chris sits, I guess, um, towards confessional. I don't know how else you would put that, but we'll go into that a little bit later. Um, to begin, then, would you mind uh, explaining conditionalism, um, whether or not it's a synonym for annihilationism, and how you would define those terms? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I have found that it's helpful to answer that question by first um, making clear just what the traditional view is, Um, because uh, very often I think that when people think of the doctrine of eternal torment that they believe in, it really just boils down in their mind to eternal torment, and and that's and that's all they think about. That's that's how they conceive of it, and they don't have any further flesh on those bones. Um, those who do have flesh on those bones sometimes think that that eternal torment begins to take place after a person dies and becomes disembodied in 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 hell, and then they stay there forever. So so hell is a disembodied state in a lot of people's thinking, uh, where disembodied souls go after the person dies and that disembodied soul remains disembodied forever and is eternally tormented there. But that's not the traditional view. This is really critical. Your your listeners need to understand this. Those who affirm the doctrine of eternal torment throughout church history— Stretching back at least to the uh, middle, the second half of the second century. Um, Prior to that, you don't find Christians teaching eternal torment, but we'll get to that point later in the interview. Um, Throughout church history, believers in eternal torment have said that it's an embodied experience Mm -hmm. where resurrected immortals go. You see, the the, the um, Christianity, and this includes my side of the debate, teaches that one day all the humans, uh, all human beings who will have ever lived, will ro- will be raised from the dead. They'll come back to life physically. Their their dead bodies will be brought back to life and reunited with their disembodied souls. And at that point, um, according to the traditional view of hell, all human beings will be made bodily immortal. 
um, and will bodily live forever. Um, the righteous, the saved, they will go on to experience their everlasting embodied life as immortals in the presence of God and in the community of his people, and it'll be a blissful existence, and, and all of that's uh, very true and profound and, and absolutely to be affirmed. But what the tradition also says is that the wicked, the resurrected wicked, will also be made uh, bodily immortal. They will be made physically immortal and they will physically live forever. It's just they'll live forever in some poorly defined, unarticulated pocket of the cosmos or something. You know, this is really isn't typically fleshed out, um, but it is embodied. And so, so hell and eternal torment, according to this traditional view, is one in which people live immortal forever as embodied human beings. That's really critical because what that means is that according to the traditional view of hell, immortality, human human embodied immortality is universal. All human beings uh, are made bodily immortal when they are resurrected. And by the way, that's also true of universalism, which is you know a whole other conversation we can get into. But the point is, is that that's the fundamental thing, uh, that that's the, the the crux of this debate. The traditional view and universalism both say that all human beings, when they are resurrected, will be made immortal and will live forever. Um, and the tradition just says that people, the wicked, when they're made immortal, will live forever in hell. They will never repent out of hell. Whereas universalism says eventually. Everybody will. We the reason why my view is called conditional immortality is for precisely that that reason. We don't think immortality is universal. We think immortality will be given only to the resurrected saved. Um, the resurrected lost will remain mortal, every bit as mortal as they are now, and their judgment will be literally a second death. They will literally die a second time. Now, if, uh, as uh, historically most Christians have believed, human beings have immaterial souls that remain conscious after the first death, um, we conditionalists believe that the resurrected wicked, when they are judged and sentenced to the second death, it won't only be, be their bodies that die, their souls will die as well. And so the whole person, the whole wicked person in hell, will be completely destroyed and will completely cease to live in any way. And because it's a death not only of body but also of soul— um, they will cease to consciously exist altogether. And for that reason, that particular facet of conditional immortality is known as annihilationism, meaning um, you know, to distinguish our view of what will happen to the wicked from what the tradition says will happen to the wicked, we think they will be destroyed body and soul, will cease to consciously exist altogether, whereas the tradition says um, they will remain immortal and alive forever in hell physically. Um, but again, the reason why I prefer the label conditional immortality to annihilationism is because conditional immortality captures all these other things that that inform and that result in the view of annihilationism. The question of what does the Bible say about who's going to be immortal and live forever? The question of what does the Bible say about the atoning work of Christ? What does the Bible say about the new creation? All of these things inform my belief in annihilationism, and that's why I prefer the term conditional immortality. Absolutely. So that makes me want to springboard into a couple other questions. But before we do that, um, I think you believed you you mentioned a facet uh, of annihilationism, but I don't know if there's are there distinctions between different um, annihilationist views or conditionalist views? Or are they monolithic or how would you address that? 
Yeah, so there's uh, they are not monolithic by any stretch of the imagination, and there are at least two categories of differences between um, uh, those of us who identify as conditionalists or annihilationists. One kind of difference is the exact same kind of difference uh, that exists within uh, among believers in the traditional view of hell. So every imaginable. Um, debate within Orthodox Christianity, where evangelicals can legitimately disagree on this or that topic, every single one of those debates takes place among believers in conditionalism as well. So for example, I'm Reformed, but many of my conditionalist friends are either Arminian or Molinist or uh, or even open theists. I am um, uh, a theological continuationist, meaning that I don't see any biblical or theological reason for thinking that the uh, sign gifts have ceased, so I think they still continue, although I'm very skeptical of claims that they've been exercised. But there are conditionalists who are cessationists. You know, I'm a um, amillennialist, but there are conditionalists uh, and annihilationists who are premillennialists or postmillennialists, and on and on it goes. Right. So, so there's this this there's this category of differences between us. Um, the same the, the the same exact differences that exist between um, people who hold the traditional view. The other category of difference are differences that are peculiar to um, camps within conditional conditionalism and annihilationism. So, for example, I believe, and we have to believe that all uh, sin, all sinful beings will be ultimately destroyed, and that includes both human and fallen angelic beings. Um, so I don't believe that Satan and his demons are going to be tormented forever. I think they're going to be destroyed along with wicked human beings on the last day. But there are other conditionalists and annihilationists who w might be called partial annihilationists who would say that uh, that yes, wicked human beings will be destroyed because human beings don't innately uh, uh, possess immortality, but angelic beings do, and so the wicked angels will suffer forever in torment. Um, another example of differences between us is that, and, and actually this is to a much smaller extent true of people who hold to the traditional view, um, but it's a much bigger debate within conditionalism, is the question of the intermediate state and 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 human uh, human constitution, right? So many conditionalists are um, uh, very traditional in their anthropology, meaning they believe that human beings have a material body and they have an immaterial soul. And when the human body dies, the first death, the the disembodied soul continues to be conscious. And there are, of course, even trichotomists, people who make a distinction between soul and spirit, you know, and treat those as two separate things and then the body a third thing. But then there's also uh, a sizable number of people in the conditionalist community who are um, – who, who who might fall under the larger umbrella of soul sleep. Um, so, and this might be because they are what are called physicalists, meaning they don't believe human beings have immaterial souls. They would say that um, our minds are the product of our functioning brain, and when our brain ceases to function at death, so does our mind. Um, or some, some of them would say that human beings do have immaterial souls, but those souls sleep at death and awaken at resurrection. Um, and these, you know, this sort of soul sleep umbrella is uh, particularly the case with denominational conditionalists, which are uh, Seventh-day Adventists and the Advent Christian denomination. Um, outside of those denominations, however, the there's a much larger number of dualists, people who believe that human beings have souls uh, that survive death in some sense. So 
Yeah. Uh, so the question of whether the angelic beings will also be destroyed, uh, wicked ones, that's one area of debate within our view. And then the question of whether human beings are conscious in death, uh, that's another one. Uh, one other one I'll mention, there are uh, – we at Rethinking Hell believe that the punishment – of that the punishment for sin that is meted out in hell is death. Um, the the resurrected wicked will be judged. They will be sentenced to death, and they will be killed. They will be destroyed. Um, and that process by which they are killed uh, will likely be painful, as all methods of capital punishment are. E- even lethal injection, by the way, a lot of um, medical people are saying that no, there's more pain there than we think. Um, but then there are other conditionalists who would uh, say that the wicked may spend months, years, decades, even centuries in hell being punished for their sin. And then once they're done being punished for their sin, then they will be destroyed. That's not our view at Rethinking Hell, but that is a view that um, that some conditionalists uh, and annihilationists hold. So there's a few examples of the kinds of debates that we conditionalists have amongst ourselves. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so when it comes to the topic of eternal destruction, I've heard you know, the the argument from both sides kind of that, well, one views it as it's eternal destruction, which therefore means that you're being destroyed eternally. And then there's another view that says that you're destroyed and the period in which you're destroyed is just eternal. So you're no longer existing. Um, I guess, how would you address that particular topic? Uh, I, I thought that was a pretty good way of di- uh, distinguishing between the two ways of reading that. L- oh. Let me give you an analogy. <laughs> um, uh, think of the word translation. Okay. Right? Um there, th- this is this is a, a kind of noun called a deverbal noun, which is a noun that um, is related to a verb and shares some of the characteristics of that verb, but but does not share um, others because it's a noun. And what's interesting is that a lot of linguists recognize that these kinds of nouns in a variety of languages um, are. Uh, ambiguous um, without context helping you understand what uh, which of two possible meanings is in view. And those two possible meanings in these ambiguous deverbal nouns are process reading and result reading. And the word translation it helps to illustrate the difference between these two ways of understanding these deverbal nouns. If I said to you, um, the translation of the ancient document took 10 years, you would know without even thinking about it that I'm talking about the process of translating. Mm -hmm. But if I said to you the ancient translation remains to this day, you would know without even thinking about it that I'm talking about the product or result of the process of translating. And this is also this is true of all sorts of words, including destruction and punishment and a number of others, um, where the where the noun could refer to either the process of the underlying verbs ongoing, you know, um, or it could refer to the result of the underlying verb. So when we talk about eternal punishment or eternal destruction, the traditional view reads those phrases as those phrases as eternal punishing or eternal destroying. All right. But we conditionalists, at least those of us who um, take word, the words meaning eternal at face value, which includes me and, and those of us at Rethinking Hell, um, we understand eternal punishment and eternal destruction not as eternal punishing or eternal destroying, but the everlasting punishment that results from being punished with death. That, and, you know, if the punishment is uh, lifelessness, not having life, 
Um, that's what results from being punished with death, with, with, with capital – the result of being capitally punished. Um, the destruction that results from being destroyed lasts forever. Um, those are how we would read it. So it's, it's really that difference between eternal punishing versus a punishment – that lasts forever. Um, it's the difference between eternal de- destroying versus a uh, destruction that lasts forever after the thing has been destroyed. Yeah, that was a good explanation. Um, so whenever it comes to, say, uh, well, I guess the traditional, traditional stance, you know, you mentioned how a lot of modern Christians kind of misunderstand, you know, what happens before the second resurrection of both the evil and the good which I think we talked about in the show before where, you know, hell doesn't exist yet. It's a state that comes afterwards with the lake of fire, right? I don't know if y'all hold that view. Do you? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the, hell does not yet exist. Um, if if people are conscious in death and if the wicked are tormented between death and resurrection, that's taking place in Hades or Sheol, uh, what theologians call the intermediate state. It's not until after the resurrection that hell will exist. So within that intermediate state, um, Oh, I guess I want to step back a little bit with texts like where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? I'm sure you hear those texts all the time. How does mm-hmm. that relate to either hell or the intermediate state? Or how do you guys perceive those particular texts? Well, when I see uh, every place I see the language of weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's in the context of a final punishment. So far as I can tell, okay. it's not about the intermediate state. But what's interesting is that the the places where the, that language is used most explicitly is is in the context of what are essentially parables, um, parables of the kingdom, in which the uh, people who thought they were in the kingdom will be excluded from the kingdom, um, and and when they are when it is revealed to them that they are excluded from the kingdom, they will weep in sadness that they are being so excluded and they will gnash their teeth in anger at the fact that they are so being excluded. Um, it's, it's not language of, uh, physical pain or anything like that. Um, but what's interesting is that, uh, that, there's never, first of all, that language of weeping and gnashing is never said to go on forever. And number two, there's at least one place where that weeping and gnashing is in a context in which it cannot go on forever. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of Matthew chapter 13. Um, there's a, Jesus tells a parable. And in the parable, a landowner tells his servants to gather up the wheat in the tares um, and then to separate them and to throw the tares into a fire and burn them up. And the Greek word katakaio, it doesn't just mean burn, it means burn up, reduce to ashes, right? Burn down to nothing. And then Jesus interprets that parable. And he says, just as the tares are burned in the fire, so will the wicked be thrown into a furnace of fire on the last day. And and he's alluding there to Malachi 4, in which the wicked are thrown into a furnace of fire and reduced to ashes beneath the soles of the feet of the righteous. And and so, so it's this picture of the wicked being completely destroyed, burned down to ash, not being tormented forever and ever. But it says that there will be weeping and gnashing um, when they're thrown in to that furnace. So, um, you know, you can imagine people weeping and gnashing their teeth in anger at the knowledge that they're being um, excluded from the kingdom of God. You can even imagine them weeping and gnashing their teeth as they're being burned to death. But that it can't go on forever because they're being burned to death in that um, in that scene. So I would say yes, weeping and gnashing does have to do with final punishment. It doesn't seem to have to do with physical pain if you look at how the language is used elsewhere in Scripture. Um, but either way, it, it it is not an experience that will go on forever because in the only places where anything about duration is explicit, um, it could only happen until the wicked are completely burned up. Okay. Um, 
So some of the things you said there kind of move smoothly into the next thing I was going to bring up, which was Revelation 1411, uh, 2010, 2015, which I'm sure you see quite a bit. Um, I guess, how would you address those texts where, um, uh, you know, Revelation 1411 says, and the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Uh, these worshipers of the beast and the image. And then, I mean, Revelation 20, 10 through 15 kind of says something similar. So how would you look at those texts? And um, I'm sure they come up often. Yeah, they do. There, we we conditionalists affectionately call those two texts and Matthew twenty five forty one to forty six. Mm-hmm. We call those three texts uh, the big three, meaning that um, those three texts more than any other come up in this debate when traditionalists think they've got a smoking gun that they that they can challenge us with, um, which I know is not what you're doing with it. But yes, we're very familiar with these texts. Um, let me preface this by saying two things. First of all, um, a co-author and I are publishing a journal article. Um, on this very topic. What does the book of Revelation say in terms of the final punishment of human beings? It's actually going to be an article in a series of three articles, one of them written by a universalist uh, who who is making an argument that that Revelation teaches universalism, and the other one by a traditionalist who argues that the book of Revelation teaches eternal torment. So, um, and, And I'm pretty sure that the journal articles will be available for free as soon as they're published. So if you keep in contact with me, I'll give you the links when they're available, and people can go and check out our articles to get more detail than I'm going to be able to provide here. The second thing I want to preface my answer with is that what convinced me of conditional immortality more than anything else uh, about 10 years ago, after having been a traditionalist for some 10 years, was that with virtually no exception, every single proof text historically cited in support of eternal torment proves upon closer examination to be better support for conditional immortality. That's a bold statement, and I'm happy to um, defend that statement. And I'll, and I'll do that with these two here in Revelation. Th- these are not exceptions to that rule. The, when I when I explored these texts in more detail than I had done previously, I realized these aren't challenges to conditional immortality. These don't even have to be reconciled with conditional immortality. These two texts actively teach conditional immortality. So I'm happy to to um, give a little bit of detail, and then people can go and read the article for more when it becomes available. So let's start with... Um, Revelation 14, 9 to 11. And what's important to um, to understand when you get to the bulk of the book of Revelation is that you're dealing with a particular kind of prophetic vision that we see all throughout Scripture. It's not like a it's not like the future was recorded on a camera and then a Blu-ray disc was sent back in time and John pops it into a Blu-ray player and watches the future. That's not how these kinds of prophetic visions work. If you go back, for example, to when Joseph is in prison after he was sent there by Potiphar's uh, by Potiphar because his wife falsely accused Joseph of sexual advances. Um, while in prison, Pharaoh sends while Joseph is in prison, Pharaoh sends his chief cupbearer and baker to prison, and they've got these perplexing dreams, and Joseph interprets them for them. And he tells them, he tells the cupbearer who had dreamed about a branch with three buds on it, he says the three br- buds or the three branches or whatever are three days. And then he tells the baker who had a dream of three baskets on his head that the baskets are three days. And he tells them both that after three days, Pharaoh is going to take you out of prison. He says to the cupbearer, you're going to be restored. And he says to the baker, you're going to be killed. So, and that's just one example of myriads of these throughout scripture where the future is foretold by means of these bizarre 
perplexing esoteric symbols that can't be properly understood without being interpreted. That's the whole thing that Joseph was doing there, right? It's what Daniel did for Nebuchadnezzar. It's what angel angels did for Daniel. And it's what an angel does for John here throughout the book of Revelation is interpret these bizarre symbols. So we need to make sure that as we dig into these texts, you know, the, the, the symbolic nature of this vision isn't justification for dismissing it. Nobody is saying that we should be doing that or minimizing it or anything. But what it does mean is we have to exercise very careful, sound hermeneutics in order to properly understand them. Now, one of the things that is critical to understanding a, a symbolic vision like this is to look at how the um, vision features the same symbols elsewhere. So here in Revelation 14, 9 to 11, we see at least three different um, symbols sort of crammed together here. There's the symbol of drinking God's wrath. There's the symbol of being tormented with fire and sulfur. And there's the symbol of smoke rising from their torment forever and ever. And what uh, what is interesting is that in Revelation chapters 18 and 19, all three of those symbols appear again. Um, they they happen to this blood-drunk vampiric prostitute with Mystery Babylon written on her forehead, um, and she's riding the beast. And in that passage, she's made to drink of God's wrath. She's tormented in fire and sulfur. And at the beginning of Revelation chapter 19, a, cro a chorus cries out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up. Up forever and ever. So you've got all three of those things, drinking God's wrath, torment and fire and brimstone, um, smoke rising forever. But the angel interprets this imagery for John at the end of chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. A mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. So you see all of this picture, this this picture of this blood, this vampiric prostitute being um, made to drink of God's wrath and being tormented in fire and smoke rising from her torment forever. This is all symbolism communicating the destruction of the city that she represents. And the same is true then in Revelation 14, 9 to 11. That symbolism all communicates the, the symbolism of people being tormented forever and ever in fire and brimstone is symbolism communicating their complete destruction. And this isn't new to the book of Revelation. Um, this is how all of this imagery was used in the Old Testament from which so much of the, of the book of Revelation comes. Um, so for example... Uh, smoke rising forever goes back to Isaiah 34:10, in which smoke rises forever from the burning pitch that the city of Edom had been turned into. Um, it goes back even further than that. After Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, Abraham Abraham goes and looks out on the plains and sees smoke rising from the plains. So smoke rising is is to the ancients what a mushroom cloud is to us. It's a symbol um, that that evokes the the thought of complete obliteration and destruction. And that's what's going on here in Revelation 14, 9 to 11. As for Revelation 20, there's even more I could say here uh, and, and do say in the article, um, but I'll just make a couple of points. Um, first of all, it's not only the devil, the beast, and the false prophet who are thrown into this lake of fire and sulfur. They are the only three who are said to be tormented day and night forever and ever. But I do think it's fair uh, to try to treat the imagery consistently and say that the other things thrown into the lake of fire are tormented uh, for, forever and ever as well. Um, one of those things that's thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur is the resurrected wicked, right? We see that later in verses uh, 13 and following, um, uh, you know, anyone who, or verse 15, anyone's name who is not found 
written in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire, presumably to be tormented forever and ever. But notice that death and Hades are thrown into that lake of fire as well. Now, death and Hades in reality are not concrete entities, let alone living conscious beings. They're abstractions, or at least death is. Death is is the the process of dying, the reality of death, and Hades is the intermediate state, the underworld, whatever. Neither of these things are concrete entities or conscious beings in reality, but they are in the vision. If you go back to Revelation 6 or 7, wherever it is that the four horsemen of the apocalypse are, you'll see that death and Hades are horsemen. So they're conscious beings in the vision, and so therefore they should be presumed to be tormented forever and ever in the lake of fire as well. But what does that symbolism mean of death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire? Well, we see just a few verses later in Revelation 21, um, uh, 4, Hathanatas uk estai eti, death shall be no more. It's the same thing that's communicated in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Uh, the Greek verb katargeo meaning to completely nullify, to make of complete you know, n- nullification of, n- make it no longer happen. So the picture of death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire and presumably they're tormented just like the other things thrown into it, that symbolism symbolizes the annihilation of death and Hades. Nobody will ever die ag- ever again. And if we're going to treat the symbolism consistently, we would expect then for everything that is thrown into the lake of fire and tormented to be a symbol for those things being, the things that those things represent being destroyed. Um, And that's why when John and God himself interpret the lake of fire symbolism, just like Joseph did, just like Daniel did, just like angels did for John, um, they say that the lake of fire is the second death. And when interpreters of these highly symbolic visions tell you what a thing in the image is, you know, the, 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 the three baskets are three days, the seven cows are seven years, the tree is you, O king. These are all examples of how uh, apocalyptic prophecy is interpreted um, throughout scripture. Here, the lake of fire is the second death, means the thing that John sees in the vision is the lake of fire. What it symbolizes is the second death. Uh, and, and what then does second death mean? Well, because it's the interpretation of the imagery, it's got to either be just plain ordinary language, um, meaning in which case it would just mean the second time people die, which would be consistent with conditionalism and inconsistent with traditionalism, or it could be a well-known phrase that John's readers would have been familiar with so that when he says the lake of fire is the second death, they would have had the idea of second death already in their minds and they would have said, oh, that's what you're talking about. Well, as it turns out, the second death does appear several times in the Aramaic Targums, which were um, translations of the Hebrew Old Testament into Aramaic, and with which John and his readers were familiar. And everywhere second death is used in the uh, Aramaic Targums, it's a reference to literally dying in the eschaton and never living again. So... And, and that's just two way, t- two examples of how this imagery in Revelation 20 positively teaches the literal second death of the wicked rather than their immortalization and suffering forever in hell. There are plenty of other points that could be unpacked here as well, uh, but for in the interest of time, many much of which I've already spent, and I apologize, um, I'll leave it there and just encourage listeners to check out our journal article when it gets published. No, that was, that was good. Um, a lot of compelling thoughts to wade through there. So I guess kind of going 
into a, a different direction. Um, in terms of this this uh, statement that I've seen kind of thrown around is, how would you speak to the idea that conditionalism undermines God's justice and holiness? Basically that if an atheist is uh, told that, you know, in the end you'll be destroyed, he'll be like, well, who cares kind of thing. Like, uh, how would you address that? Well, so there are a couple of things there. Let me address the last thing you said first, which is, is annihilation, is destruction, is death a fate that the wicked fear? Um the indisputable historical reality is that it is, in fact, a fate that they fear. Um, death is the largest, the biggest human fear. And although we live in a technological, a technologically advanced day and age in which death is far from us, or at least we think it is until all of a sudden it's staring us in the face, um, you know, th that enables us to not think about it much. But when we do have to think about it, it, act it absolutely um, drives us into terror. And this is the premise of, uh, you know, so many horror movies. Think, for example, of the Saw uh, series of movies. The whole premise of that, and, 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 and this is supposed to be relatable. We, we can all, on some level, relate to the temptation that people would have to do really terrible things in order to save their lives. Um, that's, you know, that's that's fundamental to this genre of film. And it happens in real life. Um, the movie 127 Hours is based on a real life um, hiker who got his arm stuck in a, in a, um, cav uh, in a, in a, um, uh, cavern, not a cavern, uh, you know, like a crevice, whatever. And um, he was, he'd been stuck there for 127 hours and he would have died of hunger or thirst. And so in order to escape himself, he literally cuts his own arm off and he, and he climbs out of the ravine. He literally, he repels down a cliff face, literally single-handed because he's by this point cut his arm off. Um, he does all of that just to save his life just to save his life. And this is and this is true all throughout human history. In fact, there are plenty of people in history who have said that annihilation is a more dreadful, more fearful fate than living forever. Um, the first century Greek historian Plutarch said that his Greek countrymen would have much preferred to spend eternity in Hades than, uh, than to be completely destroyed. Even St. Augustine, who was a, uh, who many of us conditionalists think is responsible for popularizing the doctrine of eternal torment amongst Christ amongst Christians. Even he said that if you were to take any um, sinner and give him the option of either living forever in hell or being annihilated, he would in an instant and joyfully choose to be um, to live forever in torment. That's Augustine who said that. Fast forward to just the last couple centuries, the 20th century um, agnostic poet Philip Larkin, in his poem Albad, he writes in uh, really grave and profound and beautiful, but very grave um, terms about humankind's fear of annihilation. He was an agnostic. He di he didn't expect there to be an afterlife or there to or you know any sort of salvation or anything. He expected that when he died he would cease to exist, and that dr caused him dread. He he explains in his poem that yes, we can drink the fear away. We can we can keep ourselves entertained in order to keep ourselves from thinking about it. But when those things fade away and we're left with the stark reality reality that one day we'll die and cease to be conscious of anything any longer. It fills us with dread, he said. Now, not everybody, of course, shares the view that um, annihilation is even more terrifying than eternal torment. Many people don't share that view, and I understand why. That's fine. But Everybody does, in fact, fear death, and that includes – well, maybe not believers, but that's because we know that we'll be raised, 
right? Uh, but those who don't have that hope, they do fear death. And the proof of that is how much money people are pouring into efforts to try and prolong um, human lifespans, even indefinitely. Um, it's such a lucrative industry that they're, um, you know, people are pouring tens and even hundreds of thousands of dollars into technologies that they hope will one day make it possible for them to be frozen until one day they're able to stop aging or to transfer their consciousness into digital form or to transfer their consciousnesses into artificial bodies. These are all actively ongoing efforts right now. Um, humankind is in a desperate search for some way to achieve immortality. Um, and that's because we all long to live forever. So no, it's it's simply absurd when somebody says that an atheist will just say, oh, no big deal, I'm just destroyed. No, they, they, even if an atheist does say that, they're lying, and all of the historical evidence um, supports that contention. So it, no, and, and besides, look, even if that weren't the case, many, 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 many atheists reject Christian, excuse me, reject Christianity, in part by their own admission because of the doctrine of eternal torment. They think it makes God out to be uh, foolish and absurd and inconsistent with his supposedly loving character. They, they say it makes Christianity out, seem to be archaic and Byzantine and, and, and out of date and, and clearly the product of human minds rather than of God. Um, so at the very least, the doctrine of eternal torment drives as many atheists away from the faith as it does convert them. So at the very least, if you embrace this view— it makes no difference. Yeah, they they don't – if it were true that they didn't fear annihilation, fine. They didn't fear eternal torment either. In fact, they rejected Christianity of it for that reason. So it's it's a wash at, at minimum. But like I said, the historical evidence suggests that human beings do in fact fear death. Uh, and, and so, yeah, that argument just doesn't work. Now, the other question has to do with whether or not – the death penalty is a sufficient punishment or even a punishment at all. And quite frankly, I, I can't relate to anybody who would who would even try to make the claim that it's not a punishment, that it's not truly a punishment, or that it's not even a grave punishment. Um, human uh, governments through, throughout human history have reserved capital punishment for the most heinous of crimes. Um, and, and that's even true, by the way, in the Old Testament law. You know, um, if you stole, you would have to repay and sometimes repay several fold what you stole. But for the worst crimes, and, and some of those crimes aren't even don't even seem that bad to many of us today, the the, the worst offense, the, the worst offenses were punished with the worst punishment, which was death. So we have both the biblical precedent um, for death being the punishment reserved for the most heinous of crimes. We've got the precedent set in human governments all throughout the world and throughout human history where death is reserved for the most heinous of crimes. And then we've got explicit testimony in the New Testament. You know, uh, Paul says at the beginning of Romans 1 that those who do such things, and he's talking about murder and um, lust and adultery and all these things, he says those who deserve or to do those things know they deserve to die. <laughs> you know, um, the only way you could possibly say that death isn't a punishment or that death isn't a bad enough punishment is if you stick your head in your sand, you ignore what the Bible says, you ignore what human beings all throughout human history and all throughout the globe have said, all just so you can defend um, a tradition that lacks any biblical support. And and I don't think that that's a healthy way to approach the topic. So one thing that I've heard in terms of, I guess, the punishment um, you know, if sin is basically treason against an eternal God, then the punishment needs to be eternal as well. Mm. 
Have you heard that before? And if so, how would you, I guess, tackle that? I have heard it before. It was first come up with by uh, Anselm um, about a thousand years after Christ, which is interesting to me. There was nobody who thought of this argument until a thousand years after Christ. What's more, um, it wasn't an argument that led to belief in eternal torment. It was an argument made to justify eternal torment. So it's an ad hoc way of trying to justify a pre-existing belief. It's not an argument to that belief. Mm. Um, but what do I make of it? Well, I'm happy to just sort of accept it and say, sure, let, let's accept that for the sake of argument, that um, that a sin against an infinitely holy God is deserving of an infinite penalty. If that's the case, annihilation qualifies. If the punishment is is to have you is to no longer have life, and if that punishment lasts forever, it is an eternal punishment and by definition an infinite punishment. So it qualifies even if that argument um, holds up under scrutiny. In fact, sorry, my nose is a little stuffy. In fact, arguably, annihilation more properly upholds that penalty because in the traditional view, this torment that is ongoing forever never never satisfies that punishment. There constantly has to be punishing being doled out in hell, and even after trillions of millennia, that they haven't yet achieved the infinite amount of eternal torment that, that is owed to them. So justice is never done in the traditional view. But in the conditionalist view, the everlasting lifelessness of the wicked is secured when they are destroyed. So justice is done. The infinite penalty is secured. There's no no additional punishing that has to go on forever um, because they're dead and gone. And their punishment has been secured by their demise and by the assurance that they won't one day raise, be raised again. Um, so so it, it – it, it, the, the argument, if one accepts it, doesn't challenge my view. In fact, arguably, it challenges the traditional view. That having been said, I don't find the argument to be very compelling. Um, and there are two reasons, at least, why I don't find the argument compelling. Firstly, I think to speak of God as infinitely holy is a mistake in terminology. Um, imagine if I said that a, that a circle is infinitely round, well, that wouldn't make any sense. You know, um, there's no such thing as infinitely round. What there is is perfectly round. And I think that we should say the same thing about God. God is perfectly holy. So it doesn't so so that's first of all, the, the infinitely holy thing doesn't, I think, really cash out. But secondly, it's not only the person, the, the status of the person who is sinned against that determines the penalty, it's also the status of the one who does the sin. So very often people will say something like this. If you go and you smack your neighbor, um, you might get fined for assault or something like that if anything happens to you at all, but that's about it. It's a slap on the wrist. But if you slap the president of the United States, you're going to go to prison and face a much harsher punishment. And that's offered as proof that the status of the one sinned against can have a can can affect the duration of the punishment and that's fine insofar as it goes but now think of it from the uh, from the sinner's perspective if i smack my neighbor or my or, or the president i'm going to get certain a certain punishment but if my 3 year old slaps my neighbor or the punishment my three-year—I don't have a three-year-old. That's my six-year-old. Um, <laughs> my six-year-old won't get nearly the same punishment that I will. So the status of the one doing the crime or the sin also affects the 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 um, uh, the, the the quality of the penalty. So 
even if it's true that an infinitely holy God, that, that a sin against an infinitely holy God might merit an infinite penalty, it would seem as if an extremely finite creature who commits a crime or a sin should likewise be, uh, should merit a finite penalty. Um, so I, I, now I'm not saying that that argument is right either. I'm not saying that it, it, that therefore it should be a finite penalty because after all, as I've already said, annihilation is an infinite penalty. Um, but what I am saying is that the argument isn't nearly as persuasive as it seems at first glance to people when you just give it a little bit more thought. Yeah, that was an interesting, um, interesting perspective for sure. Um, I guess kind of going into a, a different, you keep referencing church history and, you know, I, I love church history. So with that, whenever conditionalism or annihilationism or however you want to put it in this particular context is said to not be historic uh, in the in the church, how would you respond to that? I would say it's more historic than the doctrine of eternal torment. Um, I uh, so I every week Mondays at 6 p.m. Pacific I do a live stream on the Rethinking Hell YouTube channel, and I cover a variety of topics. But one of the series that I've been doing, um, contributing to here and there, is a series called Conditionalists in History. And I've um, in that series, and if people go to YouTube.com/slash/RethinkingHell and look at our videos, they'll see these and they can watch them, uh, watch them for for so that they can get the context and the proof of what I'm about to say here. But I've covered three church fathers so far in that series um, and demonstrated that they were thoroughly conditionalist. And these are all apostolic fathers, so these are um, prior to the. Um, the end of the middle point of the second century. In fact, um, some of them are, uh, if not all three of them, actually are in the late first century. Um, they are Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, and uh, the writer of the Epistle of Barnabas. Ignatius of Antioch was born in 50 AD, I think, and he died in 110 AD. And somewhere toward the tail end of that first century, or maybe the beginning of the second, um, he wrote his epistles. And in his epistles, he makes it very clear. He, he uses the Greek words, uh, the Greek language, the Greek family of words that have to do with death, like thanat to refer to ordinary bodily death. He never uses it to refer to some sort of separation from God or anything. And he says that that's what's awaiting the wicked. He uses uh, the, even the Greek word zoe and, and the verb form zao, which, which mean to live life. He uses that language to refer to ordinary embodied life. And he says that that's coming only to the righteous. He says... Um, he, he even, so in, in Ignatius's day, there were Gnostics who were claiming that Jesus didn't literally come in the flesh. And Ignatius said, if that's true, then he didn't literally rise either. And he says, it would be better for you to embrace the resurrection of Jesus so that you might one day be resurrected. So, he, so he's saying that those who did, that those who deny the resurrection of Christ won't rise unto eternal life. Um, so they will experience no resurrected life at all. Um, so Ignatius of Antioch, and there's other things I could say here. Again, I encourage people to go check out the video. I document this. Um, Ignatius of Antioch, again, is is uh, late first century, early second century, and he teaches my view. Clement of Rome was a contemporary of Ignatius of Antioch, and what I said about Ignatius and his language of that life and death is all true of Clement as well. Clement, um, as I demonstrate in that video, uh, is also a conditionalist. And the 
writer of the Epistle of Barnabas, the same things that I just said about Ignatius of, Inclem- and Ignatius of Antioch and Clement of Rome, those two things are true of the writer of the Epistle of Barnabas as well. The language of death is just the language of ordinary embodied death, uh, bodily death, and he says that that's what's coming to the wicked, and he says that life and immortality is coming only to the righteous. Um, those are just three examples, and in the future I intend to do episodes on Irenaeus of Lyon. Irenaeus wrote the enormous volumes, uh, the enormous series called Against Heresies, and he's a very well-respected church father. Um, he's from the late second century, and he was a conditionalist. So he he says that um, God has the power to create something that will last uh, indefinitely. And as proof of that, he points to the sun, the moon, and the stars. And he says, look, those last for ever, it seems. So God has the power to do that, and he says God will do that to the righteous, to the saved. But he says those who reject that gift deprive themselves of continuance and length of days forever and ever. So he here is teaching my view as well. And then there's also um, uh, Arnobius of Sicca. Arnobius of Sicca is given a bad rap. He's from the third or fourth centuries, um, and and many people today give him a bad rap, and he deserves some of that. He, he was much more of a philosopher than he was at the theologian, and that comes through in some of his writings. But nevertheless, he was a respected church father, um, that he had a following, and he, everybody agrees, taught annihilationism. Um, and again, this is third or fourth century. And then there's uh, Athanasius the Great. This is the the um, the guy who stood up for Orthodox Trinitarianism between uh, Trinitarianism between the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople later that century. Uh, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, is is a very well known phrase um, because he stood up for that uh, against the Arians during that time. And what's interesting in in, in his um, treatise called the Incarnation of the Word. He says, just as human beings came from nothing, so their sin was causing them to shrink back to nothing, to the nothingness whence they came. And God became incarnate in order to save them from shrinking back into non-existence. So he seems to have been a conditionalist as well. And, and this was even this is all even before Augustine. I think Augustine was a child when Athanasius wrote the Incarnation of the Word, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, and if I've got my church history correct. So the reality is this is a very ancient view. Um, the apostolic fathers I named, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, and the Epistle of Barnabas, um, they all taught my view. It's not until the second half of the second century um, that, at least by my meager and very fallible research, the doctrine of eternal torment arises among Christians. There were Jews prior to that, some, who held to eternal torment. Uh, in the Second Temple period, Jews were diverse in their views on hell. Um, there were uh, many of them, if not most of them, taught annihilation in hell. There were, at least after a period of time, uh, and then there were some who taught eternal torment. Um, so there was a precedent there, but the only, but the first Christians to teach eternal torment um, show up in the latter half of the second century in Tatian of Adiabene or Adiabene. I don't know how you to pronounce that town or that country <laughs> or whatever. Uh, and then later that century, Athenagoras. Those are the first two Christians who seem to teach eternal torment, and um, so it's it's equally almost equally historical, but it doesn't go back quite as far as annihilation. And 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 the one other thing I'll add, universalism was also very early. It's at least as early as Origen, um, who again predated Augustine. And so you've got in those early centuries of the church, you've got all three of these views represented by respected church fathers, at least respected then. Nowadays. 
and I think rightfully so, Origin is not as respected as as he might have been at previous times. But um, but you've got all three of those views represented, and what's interesting is that they don't condemn each other as heretics. None of them are saying that people who hold to the other views are anathema. Nobody is saying they've got to be excommunicated from the church. There's no ecumenical creeds or anything that are condemning one view or elevating another. Um, the first time anything like that happens isn't until the 500s when possibly, the evidence is not at all clear, possibly at the, uh, I think it's the Seventh Council of Constantinople, something like that, um, they condemned Origen and his universalism. Possibly. They didn't condemn annihilationism, even though for centuries it had been one of these three views vying for popularity. So for some reason, the church in the first centuries of the church uh, was comfortable um, allowing Christians to hold these three views, depending upon where they felt led by Scripture. Uh, It's not until um, much later in church history that you find people condemning um, people who hold to conditional immortality uh, heretics. Yeah, so that kind of— I mean, went into my next question a little bit preemptively. So, I mean, that that's something I see kind of often is that, you know, if you're a conditionalist or an annihilationist, you're outside of orthodoxy, uh, you're going to heretical grounds. Um, and so I guess you kind of address it there. But in terms of if someone starts saying it's essential to hold to eternal torment, uh, how would you address uh, whether or not it is, whether or not it's heresy and things like that? I guess outside of the historical argument, since you just kind of made that. Sure. Yeah. So I've got a um, video in the Rethinking Hell YouTube channel called Conditional Immortality, an Acceptable View, question mark. And in that video, I offer five reasons why I don't think that um, that even if even if um, eternal torment is true, even if that's a proper reading of scripture, um, I offer five reasons in this video for thinking that the view I hold, conditional immortality or annihilationism, um, is not heretical. It is within the pale of orthodoxy. Those five reasons are the following. First of all, it arises from a deep uh, uh, commitment to the authority of Scripture. Um, now, there are certainly some conditionalists, as there are some traditionalists and some universalists, who hold to their view for reasons other than biblical authority. Um, but many of us, or most of us conditionalists, uh, believe what we do about hell because we see it taught in Scripture. In fact, in my case and many other conditionalists I've spoken to, it would be so much easier for us to remain believers in the traditional view. You know, there there are churches I can't teach at or even be a member of. There are schools I can't teach at or even be a student of because I hold to this view. It would be so much easier if I held to the traditional view, but I'm too committed to the authority of Scripture um, to to cave into those temptations uh, to remain on um, firmer ground with my conservative peers. So number one, this is a view that arises from a, a conviction of commitment to biblical authority. Number two, it doesn't violate nor logically entail a violation of any essentials of the Christian faith. So if you look at what most um, Christians in publications and in sermons and things tell you are the essentials of the faith, that number is typically fairly small. It'll include the Trinity, and it will include the deity of Christ, and in the case of um, uh, Protestants, it will include salvation by grace through faith alone. It will include um, the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead in the future, and maybe a few, a, you know, two or three other things. But in that list of essentials is never Um, until you get to maybe the um, 19th century with the fundamentalist controversy. Um, That list of essentials doesn't ever include uh, 
the doctrine of eternal torment. And what's more, none of those essentials are, viol- are, are logically required to be violated by conditionalists or by annihilationism. In other words, embracing conditionalism or annihilationism doesn't logically require the denial of one of the Christian essentials. So, so number two, the second reason after biblical authority for thinking that the doctrine of eternal torment isn't uh, isn't an essential of the faith, or sort rather, why conditional immortality isn't heretical, is because it doesn't violate any of the essentials of the faith. A third reason we've already covered, which is church history. It goes all the way back to the first century of the church, and um, it, you know, it was popular in those early centuries. It started to become popular again after the Reformation. It's not at all a novel view. Fourthly, I also touched on this, is the ecumenical creeds. So when you look at the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed, um, the the Council, the, the Chalcedonian um, formula, none of these things include the doctrine of eternal torment as uh, in them, and none of them condemn uh, people who hold to alternatives to eternal torment. So the ecumenical creeds on which many Christ- which many Christians point to as defining the essentials of the faith, they don't include the doctrine of eternal torment or exclude the doctrine of annihilationism. And then finally, modern evangelical statements of faith, things like the um, uh, the NEA, the the National uh, Evangelical Association, I think is what it's called, and and there are similar you know um, similar organizations of evangelicals around the world. Their faith statements of faith don't include the doctrine of eternal torment or exclude conditionalists either. So biblical authority, Christian essentials, church history, ecumenical creeds, and evangelical statements are just five reasons for thinking that um, even if the doctrine of eternal torment is true, and I don't think it is, but even if it is, holding to my view does not make one a heretic. All right. Um, So as a traditionalist, I, I kind of wanted to just throw this one at you. What do you think is the best argument against your position? Uh, history. There, there is no, um, I, I, and this is gonna sound rude to some people, and I don't mean it to, but there is no uh, biblical argument I can point to and say that's the best biblical argument because there aren't any even remotely good ones. Um, so I, I'm sorry, I just can't do it. Like I said, every every proof text that you that, that that traditionalists historically have cited in support of eternal torment prove upon closer examination to be better support for my view. Um, so I can't say that. But what the tradition does have a very powerful argument in its favor is the history. Because even though it's true that um, at least three apostolic fathers, Irena- or, sorry, Ignatius, Clement, and the writer of um, Barnabas, even though it's true that they held to my view and that Irenaeus of Lyon held to my view and um, Arnobius and, and possibly Athanasius and others, and even though it's true that in that after the Reformation, um, my view started to become uh, started to become popular again, and it was really popular in the 19th century, both in America and Europe. Um, even though even though those things are true, for some reasons that we can only speculate about, the doctrine of eternal torment was practically the unanimous Christian report um, sometime after sometime shortly after Augustine, all the way till about the time of the Reformation. So you've got this 1,000-year period of time where virtually every Christian, it seems, um, believed in eternal torment. Now, I can offer reasons why I think that happened, um, but those are speculative, and it's it's difficult, even, even I have to admit it's somewhat difficult to understand why it is that God would allow this falsehood, if it is a falsehood, the doctrine of eternal torment, to be the unanimous Christian report for such a long period of time. That's a difficult thing for me to explain. What I, and so that's that's the best argument against my view. But what I will say is this, 
um, Protestants, or sorry, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox who leverage that argument against my view can be forgiven for doing so. But it's really difficult for a Protestant to consistently offer that argument against my view, because for that same thousand-year period of time, roughly, um, the Church also believed in salvation by faith and works, believed in um, uh, uh, the baptism of infants, you know, and of course many of us Protestants don't baptize infants, uh, and other things, and, and, and in the infallibility of, of Church tradition or whatever. You've got several very long-standing, virtually unanimous Christian views that begin to be overturned in the Reformation. And when the Reformers were overturning them, they thought that what they were doing was was going back to a purer, um, more original form of Christianity from those early centuries whose fathers I mentioned earlier. And we conditionalists believe that we're doing the same thing. Um, so, you know, if you're listening and you're a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox, then sure, offer this argument against me. That's fine. <laughs> but if you're a Protestant, you should probably think twice about doing so. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense to me. Uh, so we, we kind of covered a lot of things that would potentially come up as misrepresentations or misunderstandings. So I'm not sure if there's any left, but I guess if there was, and if you could preemptively uh, clear up or address them, uh, what would they be? <laughs> Yeah. So firstly, I would want to clear up the the um, misunderstanding that many uh, Christians have, that the only people who hold to this view are heretics or liberals, right? So you've got, um, be- because the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists, who, by the way, increasingly Christians are not considering to be heretics. They're just, uh, they've got some strange views. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Because the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists um, hold to a view like ours, um, which, by the way, they got from Christians— uh, it, it wasn't. It was. Uh, it was Christians who, in the 19th century, who um, taught this view, from which the Seventh Day Adventists and the, and the Jehovah's Witnesses got it. So it doesn't begin with them. But anyway, most uh, Christians seem to think that those are the kinds of groups that um, hold to this view. And then there's the, the the idea that only liberals who can't stomach the idea of um, hell and aren't committed to biblical authority, they're the only ones who would question the doctrine of eternal torment. None of that's true. Um, conditional immortality, as I said earlier, is motivated by a commitment to biblical authority, um, and it's held by many of us extremely conservative, otherwise very extremely uh, orthodox Christians. Um, so that's one misunderstanding worth clearing up. Another one is the misunderstanding that we believe in a finite punishment, a, a, a temporal or, or otherwise not eternal punishment. That is true of some who self-identify as annihilationist or conditionalist. They would say that uh, the people that the wicked are punished for a time in hell, and then after they've been punished, they cease to exist. But that's not the prominent conditionalist view within evangelicalism right now. The prominent view in evangelicalism is that the punishment is indeed eternal because the punishment is death or lifelessness, and that will last forever after the wicked are killed. And so if the 
death as the punishment, and if the punishment lasts forever, then it's an eternal punishment. So um, that would be a misunderstanding worth clearing up as well. Another one is this idea, it very often comes up that it's assumed by many traditionalists that when uh, that when they encounter an annihilationist or conditionalist, they encounter, they're encountering somebody who doesn't believe that the wicked are conscious in death and, and that they um, won't be resurrected one day. But the reality is that, as I said earlier, the conditionalist community is mixed on the question of um, consciousness after death. There are plenty of dualists who believe in immaterial souls that survive death. Um, and uh, and as for the resurrection, no, evangelical condition, conditionalists do believe in the resurrection of the lost unto judgment. Um, so that would be another uh, misunderstanding worth clearing up. Um, I guess I guess that's all I can think of for now. Yeah. That was. Oh no! Let me let me offer one more. Sorry, just one more. No, no problem. We are not saying that the punishment for sin is the cessation of existence. Um, this is critical. We're saying that this, the punishment for sin is the deprivation of one's life. Now, that's really important because sometimes we are um, told that our view is unbiblical because it would mean that Christ had to cease to exist when he bore our punishment for us. And if Christ ceased to exist, then either the hypostatic union was broken for three days or the Trinity became a binity. Um, that argument's foolish, and it's based on the misunderstanding that we think the punishment for sin is the cessation of existence. We don't. We think the punishment for sin is the cessation and ongoing privation of life. And Jesus bore that punishment for us. You know, when, whenever we talk about what Christ did for us— if we're not in a debate about hell, we'll say what is so obvious and what we all know, which is that Christ died for us. And when we say he died for us, we're not using code language. We're not speaking in metaphor. We're not saying that he was separated from God for us. Quite the contrary. There are many who would say that that would be a really problematic, um, uh, that, would, that would have very problematic implications in terms of the Trinity and the deity of Christ. Um, he, when we say he died for us, we mean just that. He died for us. He lost his bodily life. He ceased to be um, alive and embodied. Now, I can think of no possible more opposite punishment than to be made immortal and live forever in hell. Jesus allegedly bore the punishment we deserve, and he died. And yet the tradition says that when the wicked get what they deserve in hell, they're not going to die. They're going to be made immortal and live forever. But conditionalists say Jesus bore death so that we can instead live. Jesus, we would have been doomed to death, but because Jesus died in our place, we will one day rise from the grave, uh, rescued from death, and will live forever. So there's a profound consistency there, but that consistency trades on the fact that we conditionalists think the punishment is death, not the cessation of existence. When we talk about the word annihilation, we're not using that word because we're trying to communicate that punishment, uh, that the punishment in hell for sin is a cessation of existence. We're just saying it's complete and total death of the whole person, including the soul, um, and that uh, lifelessness, the, the cessation of being embodied and alive is indeed what Jesus bore on our behalf. So I, I guess I would appreciate being able to clear up that misunderstanding as well. That was a really good one to, uh, to address because I mean, if I'm honest, that that's one of the things I always 
took death and the, the ceasing from existence of life, I, I guess. I don't know if I just phrased that correctly after hearing it. Uh, I took them as synonymous. And so that was a good thing for you to bring up. Yeah, and we definitely are not saying that to die means to cease to exist. And that's a great – another one, another misunderstanding to clear up. We don't mean by death uh, – by death, we don't mean cease to exist. What we mean is cease to live. And when people die the first death, they cease to live. They, they cease to be embodied and alive. They might be disembodied and conscious, but they're not alive. They come back to life um, in resurrection, and, they're, and the wicked are judged, and then they're killed, both body and soul. So they die again. They cease to be alive again, and this time forever. And that's what we mean by death. We mean cease to be alive. And that's what Jesus bore on our behalf, um, which— uh, you didn't ask me this question, but that's okay. Uh, this to me is one of the best arguments for my view is the atoning work of Christ. Because as I said, when we're not debating hell, we all know that what Christ did for us was die. And yet somehow many of us have thought, as I once did, that what we that what the wicked deserve when they get it in hell is immortality and everlasting life. It doesn't seem to make much sense to me. Okay. Um, if so, you mentioned a variety of resources, uh, the YouTube channel, the website, and I'll put the, those in the description whenever this goes up. Um, I guess if someone was wanting to begin reading on the subject, would you have any, I don't know, top three book recommendations? Yeah. So the best view, or sorry, the best book, um, in, that promotes our view is a book by the late Edward Fudge called The Fire That Consumes. Um, and it's in its third edition now, and it interacts with some of the published works by traditionalists since the first and second editions were published. So get the third edition. Um, that's uh, uh, It is a bit of a scholarly volume, um, so people who are more on the lay level might want to get Edward's, uh, Edward Fudge's uh, more popular level book, hell a final word. So that would be a good book promoting my view. I'd like to encourage listeners to look for Rethinking Hell's books as well. If you go to Amazon and just search for Rethinking Hell and A Consuming Passion, that's another one. Um, those would be good books to get. But I'll, I'll promote the fire that consumes. As for debate books, um, uh, debate books are really helpful as well because then you get both sides of the debate. Um, Robert Peterson, who is a traditionalist, debated Edward Fudge in a book called Two Views on Hell. I think that's – I want to say that's by Zondervan, maybe Baker, uh, Baker Academic. But anyway, that's a great book to get sort of a two views debate. There's also a four views debate book, two of them actually that I would recommend. And those are the first and second editions of Zondervan's Four Views on Hell. Mm. Um, in the first edition, Clark Pinnock was the conditionalist. Um, in the second edition, which was edited by Preston Sprinkle, the conditionalist, although he doesn't call himself that, <laughs> is uh, John Stackhouse. Um Denny Burke is the traditionalist in that second edition, by the way. But anyway, that, that would be another good – those would be good books for getting multiple sides of the debate as well. Um, the best books on the traditional side, if you're looking for a book that you hope will give you reason to remain confident in the traditional view, the best books I can recommend are um, Robert Peterson's Hell on Trial – and then there's also a um, edited volume called Hell Under Fire um, that has contributions from Al Mohler and G.K. Beale and a number of others. Um, I don't think that those books make a very good case. When I was still um, on the fence between these two views, I looked to those books to try and convince me of the traditional view because I desperately wanted to become a traditionalist again. Um, and ultimately, I was not persuaded. 
but readers might be more persuaded than I was, uh, your listeners, I mean. So yeah, hopefully there, there are a few books that promote my view, a couple of books that promote the traditional view, and then a couple of books that um, represent the debate between multiple views. Awesome. I, I think it was pretty cool and interesting that you offer traditionalist views on that. Um, so before we wrap up, do you have any additional thoughts or? You know, the, the one thing I would just like to leave your listeners with is, um, is, is we conditionalists, at least many of us, we at Rethinking Hell and many of the people that we dialogue with on a day-to-day -day basis, we are we believe what we believe, not because we're troubled by the doctrine of eternal torment, we can't stomach it, we can't fathom it, it keeps us up at night or anything like that. Um, in fact, for me, those weren't ever part of the equation. Even to this day, I think that God would be perfectly just if he chose, uh, if he deemed the appropriate penalty for sin to be immortal life in torment forever. Um, in fact, all of my emotions drew me back to the tradition and continue to, it'd be, as I said, it would be so much easier. But our commitment to the authority of Scripture um, and our commitment to exercising sound, standard, accepted principles of hermeneutics, our commitment to those things requires us to embrace the doctrine of conditional immortality or annihilationism and to reject the tradition. So when you encounter us and you talk to us, um, don't don't go in prepared to have a fight and don't go in prepared to um, don't go in speaking to us as if we are heretics or liberals or we're just denying scripture or we're just trying to shoehorn into it something we want to believe. None of that is very often the case. We're following where we think scripture leads just as you are. We're not violating any of the essentials of the faith in so doing. And there's no reason for us to have to fight and bicker over this and to divide from one another. You know, we live in a day and age where so much of the world is hurting and dying and desperately needs its Savior, Jesus Christ. And when believers in eternal torment will stop dividing from us and refusing to fellowship with us and refusing to minister with us, then we can work together arm in arm to reach this hurting and dying world with the Savior that it so desperately needs. And because we're committed to biblical authority and coming to the conclusions for that reason th that we have, we should be able to, and because we're not violating any of the essentials of the faith, we should be able to do that together. So listeners, please consider, if, if you're one of these people who've been very antagonistic or hostile to people who hold to my view and have felt it appropriate to divide from us and not minister or fellowship with us or anything, please reconsider what you're doing, because you're grieving the heart of God by dividing over something that shouldn't be divided over, and you're stymieing the church's efforts to reach the world with the Savior that it so desperately needs, because we could be working arm in arm together to do that. So I guess that's my appeal to your listeners that I'd like to leave them with. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, so again, this is Chris Date from Rethinking Hell. He gave us his perspective on conditionalism and annihilationism. And thank you so much for coming on and spending the time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for being such a, a gracious host and for being willing to have me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was my pleasure. So that was Chris Date from Rethinking Hell, and he presented the conditional annihilationist view. Uh, very interesting interview. Um, because of its nature, I would be curious to see what you thought after this episode, because I know most of my listeners are traditionalists, um, which we had talked uh, before the episode, and he explained, you know, this isn't supposed to be derogatory. It just means that it's what the church held most prominently throughout history, which 
I, I understood it, and I want to clarify that at the end, just in case you might have misunderstood that. So yeah, send me an email. Let me know what you thought. And uh, until next time, that'll be it.